0: Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Hey writers, we here at the Writer Experience Podcast want to thank all of our listeners and guests for helping us reach over 150 episodes. That's a lot of writing knowledge, spread out over three years. And as a way of welcoming new listeners and helping our current listeners rediscover old favorites, we're going to start airing select episodes one week per month. We hope that these writer-selects bring some new insight and inspiration to all of our fans and help us celebrate many more episodes to come. Thanks for listening, and happy writing. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Lauren S. Hisrick. Lauren is the creator, executive producer, and showrunner of the Netflix original series The Witcher, based on the book series by Andrei Sapkowski, which was recently reported as being the most in-demand TV show in the world. Previously Lauren has written scripts for TV including The West Wing, Justice, as well as written and produced shows such as Parenthood, Do No Harm, Private Practice, Daredevil, The Defenders and The Umbrella Academy. Lauren, that is a really amazing bio and very impressive. And really excited to have you on the show today. How's it going?
1: Good. Thank you so much for having me. And I can't believe you got all of those shows, even like Justice. <laughs> that was that was a long time ago.
0: So The Witcher season one, recently launched on Netflix and has been described as a global hit and the biggest TV series in the world as its writer and showrunner. How does that feel? What's going through your mind right now?
1: It is wild. You know, I mean, when you're writing a show, you always have to separate out expectations from, you know, (laughs) reality. So of course, I was so proud of the show. I thought the entire team had come together and really delivered something to be that I think the world was going to love. But you never know. You can't control who's actually going to show up and watch it and that you kind of have to leave the gods. And so I was actually on a plane when The Witcher launched on Netflix, flying back from London. And I didn't have internet on the plane. And I actually woke up in the morning in Los Angeles to see that a lot of people were watching it already. And it's just crazy. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I think word of mouth is really working well for us. And It's fun, you get the surreal moments of seeing someone, you know, on the bus next to you (laughs) watching it on their iPad. Like really? Like just a random guy on the bus is watching it. But people are really into it. It's exciting.
0: Before we get into process, I would love to find out a bit more about you. So my first question is, where are you in the world right now? Where are you based?
1: Yes. So I am in London right now, which is where we are shooting season two of The Witcher. So I've been here for about two and a half weeks on the ground. We're in pre-production now. We're crazy busy, but it's exciting to be kicking off again.
0: And tell us about your origin story. Did you always want to be a writer? What was your career trajectory leading up to this point, you know, being the showrunner for the number one show in the world?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I always loved writing, but I didn't actually think that writing was any kind of career. I'm from Ohio. The best really that I planned to do was teaching. I loved to teach writing or to teach English literature. My original plan actually had been to be a doctor because that sounded like something that was a little more career oriented. And I was about two years into university in Ohio at a place called Wittenberg University. And my English professor said, have you ever thought about this other thing? Have you ever thought about writing? And I was like, well, in my journals, or as a hobby, sure, but I'm, I'm never going to make any money. I'm never going to be able to support myself with that. But what she did is she actually pointed out something that I thought ended up becoming really important, which is doing something I was passionate about, not just something that I could foresee a really stable career in. And that has carried me really well. I ended up coming to Los Angeles between my junior and senior years of college And I ended up with an internship on a television show. It was The West Wing, which is incredibly lucky. The show hadn't premiered yet. (laughs) No one knew if it was going to be a success. All they basically had was a pilot. And so I was answering phones for free over the summer and started reading television scripts. And it was my first ever, honestly, my first ever exposure to that kind of writing. Prior to that, it had been poetry and and fiction. That's, That's what they taught in Ohio. And I read these scripts and they, I'm not kidding, it sounds cliche, but they changed my life. I suddenly had my eyes open to this entire new medium. And I went back to finish my senior year of college, but with the plan of moving to Los Angeles as soon as I could. And I ended up moving back out and started as a production assistant on the West Wing, which was very popular by then. So we were starting season two and I was on it until it wrapped at the end of season seven. I progressed you know, sort of up the the ladder. I was a production assistant, writer's assistant, a researcher, and then got into the writer's room and as a staff writer. And it was the best education imaginable.
0: Moving on to process, we usually frame our episodes around specific themes. So we've talked to comic writers, we've talked to novelists. In this case, I'd love to focus this episode on your role as a showrunner and what it means to be a showrunner, specifically using The Witcher season one as an example. Are you cool with schooling us on what it means to be a showrunner?
1: (laughs) I assume that means that I have fully learned what it means to be a showrunner, (laughs) but I will do my best.
0: (laughs) All right. So first off, tell us, for those who are listening who don't know, what does it mean to be a TV showrunner? And you're also the show's creator and an executive producer and a writer. How do those roles differ? How do they tie into you being a showrunner?
1: So a showrunner is exactly, well, what it sounds like. It's a person who runs the show from a creative perspective. In television, this is almost always a writer. It's not necessarily the writer who created the show. Oftentimes it is. And this is the person who is completely in charge of the the tone of the show, the stories of the show, the style. It really is setting up the world, the characters, and everything you want to happen. And what then I do when I come to set as a showrunner and when I come into pre-production as we're in now and then into production and into post is I continue to be, you know, kind of like quality control. It really is just making sure that everything we do, that all of the heads of departments that are working with me, costumes or production design um, you know on the witcher we have an armorer you know there's so many different are you know creature concept designs for monsters these things all come through me first just to make sure that we're all on the same page and that we're all continuing to have a shared vision of what the witcher is and then all of those department heads go off and they use their creative skills one of the best things that I think I have learned is that it's my job to hire really great and passionate people who are talented, and wonderful at their jobs. And then to trust them to do those jobs. I'm not a creature concept designer, and I'm certainly not an armorer or a costumer. So those are the people that I trust to go out and do their very best work. And it really, I mean, it's kind of like being a, the head cheerleader. You know, the scripts are written, the show is conceived, and then I'm there just to try to inspire everyone to do their best work.
0: Before a show is greenlit, so to speak, it's usually pitched and goes through development, What was your role during that process? Were you involved from the very beginning as the show's creator? Did you identify the book series as a potential successful IP? Did you write the pilot? Did you pitch that pilot? Tell us kind of how it all came about.
1: Oh, absolutely. So the IP was brought to me. One of the producers on The Witcher currently is a man named Tomek Bajinski, who is amazing. And he is Polish. He grew up with this book series. It's a Polish book series. So he grew up with it. It was really important in his childhood. And he had actually been working to try to make a movie out of it with two of our other producers, Sean Daniels and Jason Brown. And they had this whole idea for a movie. And the more they thought about it, the more they realized that that was really limiting the story of what The Witcher could be. There are eight novels in whole. So a two-hour movie isn't going to do it. And that's when they approached Netflix about making it into a television show. So Netflix had the IP at this point, and they were just looking to pair it with the best writer. And it's funny, I had done several things with Netflix by that point. I had done Daredevil and The Defenders and The Umbrella Academy, and I had really loved the sort of adaptation part of the job. All of those three projects are are comic books, and I really enjoyed adapting them to television. So when they brought this to me and said, you know, these are fantasy books, do you think you could adapt those? I actually said no. I didn't think that I would be the best person to do it you know, I do think it's a writer's responsibility to look at the property as a whole, to look at, in this case, a really passionate existing fan base, whether it be from the books or the video games. And I think the writer has a responsibility to those people. And so I was thinking, I've never written fantasy before. I'm not sure that, that I'm the best person to honor this material. And I'm so grateful. The executive at Netflix is a woman named Kelly Luganville, who still I work incredibly closely with. And she said, you know, just give the books another read. I had actually read one of the books about a year before Netflix approached me. But she said, dig back in and just, you know, don't be bothered by your preconceptions of what a fantasy show should be. Tell us what you would do, like what your version of this would be. So I went away and I read the next two books, which are sort of Destiny and Blood of Elves. And what I realized is that, of course, they're fantasy books, they're monsters and magic and violence and gore and sort of medieval battles. I mean, all of those sort of touchstones are there. But it's really about a family. It's about three people who are completely alone in the world and wandering on their own. And it's about them coming together and realizing they need each other. And that's something I knew I could tell. That's something that I can relate to in my life. And I knew that that's a story that I could tell. So I came back to Netflix and I pitched it from that angle, which is sure, it's going to have all the bells and whistles. But those bells and whistles are nothing without these three really strong characters and the familial bonds that bring them together. And honestly, I think, that's, I think that's why I got the show, is because I was willing to sort of see the deeper layers that were there, and not just sort of the fun fantasy stuff. And then, yeah, from there on, it's sort of, you know, you have your foot on the gas. From the second that Netflix said, great, you're it, I hired a researcher who's now actually a writer on the show named Bailey Hall. We started combing through the books, trying to decide what the best story for the pilot would be, and it's the fastest pilot I've ever written. I wrote it in about four days because I was so inspired by the story that I knew I wanted to tell, which is a short story called The Lesser Evil. And I turned it into Netflix and they loved it too. It went back and forth, of course, with some notes, but it's, it was greenlit very fast. I think that I turned in the script in January and I was in Poland in April uh, researching and we kicked off the writer's room in May. So it all, it all happened really, really, really fast from that point.
0: You mentioned that there are obviously novels, short stories, a film, the Hexer, I believe, three video games, graphic novel series, and you said that you went through it all and chose which stories to use. How did you make that decision? What specifically about what you chose? Why did you choose that for that first pilot?
1: You know, there's a couple of different reasons, but the most important thing to me was about the character. So we have our Witcher, Geralt, our main character, and he's been a Witcher for almost a hundred years when we meet him, and so to me. What I was looking for in that first episode was a story that could both explain where this character has been for 100 years, and then talk about, basically explain why we're joining this story at this point. So I wanted a story that changed Gerald's journey, that took everything that he had been doing, and he was really sort of, you know, stuck in his ways, and, and he was only living for his job, and he was very clear on the boundaries of his job. And then in this short story, he meets a character named Renfrey who changes everything for him. To me, that was a super exciting place to start that journey. You want to be with a character when they're going one direction, and they're like, "Oh crap!" You know, we got to start going the other one, the other way, because it brings in this whole new opportunity for the world. So now we have a character who is open to new things and is realizing that the path that he thought his life was going to take is changed now, and he starts letting new characters in and accessing his emotions a bit more. And to me, it was just such an explosive and exciting start to his journey. But then we had as a writer's room, you know, at this point now, then all of the writers join me after the pilot is written. There are so many of these beautiful short stories that are about Geralt's adventures. And we really had besides a room, how we would pick and choose them to fill in these first eight episodes. And a lot of different factors went in. Some of it was just sheer storytelling. We need building blocks, right? We need stories that progress one from the other so that there's a cool narrative structure to our entire season but we also know that we have fans you know you mentioned all of the different sort of parts of the witcher franchise and we know those people are going to come and watch this show or fingers crossed we hoped they would so what do they want to see because that matters you know our fans matter here so much because they've been part of this universe for 30 35 years already so what do we want to give them and there were certain short stories that we knew that we had to include, you know, when Geralt meets Yennefer for the first time in The Last Wish, or when he meets a golden dragon, which is one of the most famous monsters from the books. So then we knew we had to include those stories too. And it was really, it was really fun. It was a giant puzzle though. It was very difficult to sort of lay it all out.
0: Tell us about canon. Obviously you just mentioned that you want to be loyal to the fans. Does the show have its own canon? Would you say it's loyal in many ways to the original materials? Where do you draw the fine line there?
1: You know, the fine line, constantly shifts and changes. To me, when I spoke with the author, what we talked about a lot was the tone of the books, the intent of the books. Not necessarily this character has a specific hair color, or this character says this in this story. It more was about the feel of the Witcher, the feel of the world. That was the most important thing to him that we got correct. After that, it was really about how do we honor these characters, take them on similar journeys, but also. This means filling in some gaps that are in the books or, you know, a character in the book will have a, you know, 10 page monologue that's never, ever going to work on screen. So how do we take the essence of that monologue and boil it down and make it a conversation between two people as opposed to something that's happening in his brain? You know, these are all the things, of course, that any writer who's adapting has to do, which is you look at, in this case, 3,000 pages worth of material and you say, well, what's the most exciting journey? What's the most heartfelt journey? What's a journey that fans are going to love? and we'll still surprise them, but also a journey that makes sense to hopefully the new viewers that are going to come and learn about this world for the first time. So yeah, it's less about canon, it's more about we have these books, we have this amazing source material, we're going to try to adhere as close to them as we can. But we also have to make changes because we're not writing novels here; we're writing television. And it has to work for that medium too.
0: And then as far as how the story is told, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, Something that many people talk about is the timelines and how those timelines kind of intersect similar to other shows these days with nonlinear timelines like Westworld as an example. Obviously, there's a lot going on. So how did you choose to structure the show and how important is the experience of the audience kind of figuring out as it goes? How important is that to the overall story?
1: So it's a great question because to me, the timeline started as trying to solve a logic problem. The short stories that I've been mentioning to me are really the foundation, the building blocks of the world of the Witcher. It's where you get to know, you know, the continent itself, what witchers are, what their place in society looks like. And also the warring kingdoms. I mean, you really get a sense of the entire world. And that was important to me in terms of where we were starting the show from. The problem for me with those short stories is they're they're mostly just about Geralt. He is the main protagonist through them, and each of the stories is kind of just a standalone short story. It doesn't build on the next one. It doesn't take him through a linear journey. It just is like he was doing this, and then he was doing this, and then he was doing this. And then I really wanted to elevate two characters that become very important later in the book series, who are Yennefer and Ciri. So the problem is, if I want to do these short stories, and I want to see Geralt's adventures so that we understand the world of the Witcher, Ciri actually isn't born yet for most of those. And Yennefer, while she's born, is not in a lot of those stories. So I started in my mind trying to figure out how I could encompass all of this at the same time. And to me, it was about shifting our narrative, you know, storytelling structure. And it was about introducing these nonlinear timelines. So, you know, Geralt's story takes place over about 20 years. Jennifer's story takes place over about 70 years. And Siri's story takes place over about two weeks. And I was really inspired by watching Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, where he does something incredibly similar about that rescue mission in France, where, and I heard this great interview with him where he was explaining, you know, if part of the rescue mission took a week, part took a day, and part took an hour, if each of those segments only took up as much time in the movie as they took in real life, then you would think that the week-long rescue was the most important, because it took up the most time. But in fact, all three were equally important, and I loved the experience of watching that movie and sort of figuring that out, which is the second part of your question. And it's the thing that probably is I'm most sensitive about the reaction to, because I love watching something and figuring it out as I go. That to me as a viewer is really exciting. It's why I'm a big fan of Westworld. It's why I'm a big fan of, you know, Pulp Fiction. It's like all through entertainment, I love the sort of journey of, oh, crap, what's happening? Okay, if I just hang in, it's all going to come together, and it's going to come together in a way I didn't see coming. That, I thought, was a real benefit of this way of storytelling for The Witcher. I was surprised by just how many people (laughs) hate it. Oh, really? Um, But it's interesting because it was a real, it was a learning, you know, it it was a lesson for me because I thought, oh, right, not everyone likes to watch television the same way I like to watch television. And that's, you know, that's important to know when you're writing a show that's now been seen by, you know, 76 million accounts on Netflix. It's like, oh, right, everyone watches television in different ways. And I, that's something I'll keep in mind in season two as well, which is making sure that I'm not leading just with how I want to do it. So it's interesting. As I said, I'm sensitive about it because I loved it. But it's been a cool thing to see that not everyone, not everyone appreciated it.
0: But it's still the number one TV show in the world. So there you go. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's working. No, I was <laughs> going to say something's working. People are still, Absolutely. oh, well, that's actually a really interesting thing. And by the way, I wish that I had the forethought to think about this. It's just happenstance. But I actually believe that it's driven a lot of rewatch of the show. A lot of people are going back and watching the entire series two, three, four times because once you do, you realize that there's little clues planted all along, for even for episode one, that you're on different timelines. And I think people have enjoyed going back and watching to put the puzzle pieces back together. So that was just, that's a lucky thing that happened. I wasn't even planning for that. I wish I had been that smart. <laughs>
0: You had mentioned the writer's room briefly earlier. I would love to talk more about that. How do you choose your writers in the writer's room? Obviously, I believe you're the one who hires them. For those who don't know, how does it work and what's your role within the room?
1: So the writer's room is my favorite thing in the world. I am, I've am i never been a solitary writer. The idea of sitting just in a room someplace by myself typing for hours and days on end sounds miserable to me. So when I learned that television is written collectively, that you break stories as a room, and you bring your ideas to the table, and someone else will bring a different idea. Sometimes theirs is better than yours, or sometimes you blend them together. That sort of collaboration of writing is the most exciting thing to me. So this was my first time running a writer's room, and first time, as you said, staffing writers, choosing them myself. The truth is, is that I very rarely look for specific things in specific writers. What I do is look at it as a collective. And what you need is a diversity of, well, everything in that collective. Diversity is such a, obviously a hot button word right now. And especially I think in writer's rooms, because when you hear diversity, you think, Oh, what you mean is a bunch of different skin colors. And yes, great. Please be from all different places. Please have all different backgrounds. That's great. What you're looking for though, is a diversity of experience. And I mean, life experience. I mean, I want parents and non-parents, people who are married, people who will never get married, people who are gay, people who are straight, people who were adopted, people who still live with their mom and dad, whatever it is. You want people who have different and varied life experiences to bring to the table because you're counting on these people to, you know, pour their own life and their own souls into these stories. So it's great if we're writing a story and there's, this happened in Witcher all the time, we're writing a story about, you know, a family coming together. So I'm asking individual writers, you know, do you still speak to your parents? You know, like, what is your relationship like with your children? How do you use your own life to inform the stories? The other thing that's really important in hiring is a diversity of writing experience, not just life experience. So it was important to me to get people in that room who were obsessed with fantasy and even obsessed with The Witcher. You know, there's a few writers in the room who are complete gamers who didn't even know that The Witcher was books. They only knew the game. Then I have people who have been following The Witcher for a long time from the original book series. Then I have people who had never heard of The Witcher before. (laughs) but who loves fantasy. And then I have someone who had never written fantasy before, because it's important that when, even when you're writing a show like this, that's high fantasy, that it makes sense to everyone. You know, we really have to kick the tires and make sure like, wow, are we going crazy here? Do we need to bring it back into something that's a little bit more grounded? So you're looking for so many different things. And then finally, the most important piece, and there's no knowing this until you get everyone in the room, is chemistry. You know, you need people who, one, innately trust each other and are willing to be open and vulnerable. Writer's rooms are really hard because sometimes you're pouring your soul into a pitch that you think is great and someone says, I don't like that at all. You're like, wait, <laughs> but that was my, you know, it was a story about my kid. It's like you have to be able to sort of go and roll with the punches and keep this internalized trust, you know. But the other thing that you're looking for is you need people who are quiet, who sit back and process and think and then finally say something and it's such the fucking perfect thing. And you're so glad that they've been just holding that in their brain until the right moment. And then you need people who we call story machines who just don't shut up and who constantly are churning up. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? So it's interesting because it's a big crapshoot. You hire people that you think will all go together, who will have the right blend of life experiences, who represent different types of writing. You bring them all in one place and you hope that it works. And the good news about The Witcher is it works. My. Other big thing is, you know, I'm a mom. I have a family. My family's in Los Angeles now. I am leaving them to come work on a daily basis. So I have what I call my no asshole policy, which is exactly that. If we're going to leave our families to come work together, please be kind, be respectful. Don't be an asshole. Like we have to be in these close quarters. Let's be really respectful and nice to one another. And that actually has worked very, very well. Being kind inspires good work ethic. It just does. So we work really reasonable hours. I make sure people can get home to see their families or, you know, go to the movies or whatever they want to do. Because you gotta have life experience to be a good writer. You gotta go outside and breathe the air. You can't just sit in
0: front of the computer all the time. And what was your particular personality in that room?
1: So I am the one who sits back and takes it all in. I think that there can be, in my experience, in the showrunner position, If I were the loudest in the room, then everyone would start to just cater to me. And the truth is, when you're the boss, you sort of carry that weight anyway. You know, people want to please you. People want to put forth work that they think you will like. But the show can't just be my brain and my voice. So what I like to do is sit back, let the discussion happen, pick and choose the things that I think are working well. We dig back deeper on those things. Sometimes I will say, like, I don't think that works at all. But if everyone else loves it, convince me. Tell me why it works. Get me on your side. My writers will tell you that I have no poker face whatsoever. I sit at the end of the table and I apparently do all sorts of weird things. If my eyes look up to the left, it means one thing. If I put my (laughs) hand on my chin and like play with my lips or something, it means I mean they have a whole Lauren language that they figured out that I don't know yet. (laughs) Um, But no, I basically sit back and listen a lot. And again, it inspires people to bring their best work because they really feel heard and they feel like their voices matter in the writer's room and not just my voice.
0: We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com writer writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic. A childhood favourite or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George, and I'm Sam, and we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flicker and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre, and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flicker and Myth, iTunes, or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. So while you're in the writers' room, before the episodes are written, I imagine you are plotting out the character and story arcs first. What does that look like? What are you using? Are you using Trello boards, Google Sheets, note cards, and a cork board?
1: We use whiteboards in our room, generally speaking. I like whiteboards because I like to be able to write, and then I like to be able to erase it all and not see it again. So on the first day, like we knew we had eight episodes. On the very first day, Declan DeBarra, one of our writers, the tallest of our writers actually, got up and drew big vertical lines and split two boards into four chunks each. And we basically wrote 101 through 108 at the top of those chunks. And From day one, we sort of, you know, I gave a little speech about what I thought the show was all of the writers had read the pilot. So they sort of understood the direction I wanted to go. I pitched my initial thoughts of how I had been conceiving the season and specifically where I wanted the season to end, which was something called the Battle of Sodden Hill. And then I said, well, let's, you know, everyone else has read the books too. Let's start talking about what we love. And even by the end of that first day, we had things written in every single episode about things we thought that might go there. And our writer's room is 20 weeks long. We write all eight episodes in 20 weeks, and it's a very fast pace. We usually, at the beginning of the season, we break the season for about two weeks, two to three weeks, depending. So this is where we're talking about the macro arcs. What are the stories that we want to tell? Where do we want every character to end? How do we want them to come together? What do we want to leave at the very, you know, in the final episode so that someone wants to come back for season two or season three? Those are the things we talk about at the beginning. And then we get into the minutiae of the episodes. And for me, it's really important to how I do my job and how I expect the writers on the show to do their jobs. I assign each of the writers an episode on day one. So everyone knows, you know, they're writing episode three, they're writing episode six. There's not a competition among the writers. They don't have to prove themselves to earn an episode. I don't think that that particularly lends to a good sort of system of teamwork. So everyone knows what they're writing. And then I ask the writers to own their episodes. I expect when we start working on episode 104, say, I expect that writer to come in with some thoughts. They've been thinking about their episode as we've been building out the season. They've been thinking about their episode and what they'd like to do. And this works really well because again, as a writer, you don't want to write a script that you think is going to be rewritten and changed into something the showrunner wants anyway. You want to write the script that's going to end up on television. And across the board, that's what happened in season one the writers each really came in and they were passionate about the stories they got to tell. They were excited to start to break the stories. Some writers like to go basically break things by themselves. Some want the entire room to help. I really let it be a writer-led experience so that everyone's episode suits their style.
0: And how do you maintain a consistency across those episodes when the writers bring those episodes in? Is there a final process where everyone kind of reads them together and makes sure that it's all cohesive?
1: Yep, absolutely. So we hope And we sort of know as we plotted out the season all together, we know that the stories are going to be fairly cohesive. But part of what we do is we write all eight episodes in those 20 weeks, and then we leave ourselves about two weeks at the end to read all of them and make sure we're actually liking how the narrative is progressing. Does it feel like it lags in episode four or five? Does it feel like we got to the end and then ran out of steam or worse, got to the end and then tried to cram a bunch of shit in that didn't fit, which absolutely happened in season one. We ended up kicking a lot of stuff out. And furthermore, then, we make sure that we are using great moments from the books. One of the other things that I ask the writers to do at the end is to go sort of reread the stories, reread the books. Let's make sure that we're using every sort of fun moment we can to plant an Easter egg or to make sure we're using actual dialogue from the books to look for moments that really honor Sarkovsky's material to the best way possible. So yeah. And then what's cool about the writing process is that it doesn't end when the writer's room ends, you know? All of those scripts are vetted through the writers, through the producers, and through the executives at Netflix. But then, of course, we bring on actors, we bring on directors, we bring on crew, we have you know, a lot of other people that have a lot of other thoughts. So it's a constantly evolving process. There's never really pencils down in television until it's been shot. And I mean, even then, you get into editorial and totally start shifting things around. So it's a really sort of ongoing process. And that's where, when I mentioned earlier, being on set, where I'm kind of quality control, That's my final step in the writing process, too, is to make sure that I'm there as it's being shot, to make sure that the intentions are staying true, and to notice things that, oh, crap, maybe we didn't know that last August when we were writing those scripts, but now it's become really obvious that something didn't work in episode three, so we need to adjust something in episode five. You know, that's my job to stay constantly vigilant about that.
0: And what do the actual scripts look like? Many people are familiar with the film script format, but is the TV script essentially the same, but shorter? What are the differences?
1: they're basically the same but shorter you know we write on a program called final draft which is pretty standard in the industry you know our scripts in season one were usually around 53 55 pages and to be honest that ended up being too long we didn't know it at the time but as soon as we started shooting the episodes and then as soon as they started showing up in editorial we had episodes that you know a director was turning in a cut that was 96 minutes long and we were hoping that it would be under 60 So that's one of the adjustments, actually, that we're making in season two, which is the scripts are much shorter. A lot happens in the show. You can have two lines on a draft that can be 45 seconds or a minute and a half in a cut because it's a big action sequence or something like that. So that also is constantly being honed. But yeah, scripts, very short.
0: (laughs) At what point during the writing process does filming begin? I know that sometimes TV shows will immediately start filming once there's, you know, three to five episodes written. For this one, you said you were writing all eight. What point did filming begin?
1: Filming began after we had written all eight episodes. So we finished the writer's room, I believe, in mid-September of 2018. And we started shooting at the end of October 2018. And this was great. And this is exactly how we're starting season two as well. Everything is written already. And what that does is it allows the crew and the directors and the actors to basically do their best work as well, which is they understand the whole story. We don't spend all of the money on episode one and then run out by episode eight because we know what episode eight is now. So we can look at all of our resources. We can you know, schedule an entire season at the same time. And I just think that keeping everyone on the same page about the show that we're making, that's one of the things that working for Netflix does. If you work in broadcast television, if you work for you know, a show on NBC or whatever, you don't have that privilege because you're writing up to 22 episodes a season. I mean, you are constantly chugging. When we're just doing eight, we have the time to write them, polish them, and then hand them over and let production start doing
0: their job. And once filming begins, how does your role change? What are you doing on set? What does that look like?
1: So my role changes a lot, you know, because it really goes, you know, from the writer's room where I'm sitting at a table or at my desk or on the phone all day, you know, shooting The Witcher is quite an adventure. We shot season one in mostly in Budapest, Hungary, but we also shot in four other countries around the world. We shot in Poland, we shot in Austria, we shot in the Canary Islands in Spain, and we did some reshoots here in London. And, you know, we're just as often on a sound stage as we are hanging off the side of a mountain. And so it really is not writer Lauren, it's completely different Lauren, (laughs) which is me in like boots and winter gear being out. It's much more hands-on. It's working with the directors, it's choosing props, it is, you know, being with the actors, working on their wigs. I mean, it really is the approvals process during shooting is nutty, because basically everything has to pass in front of my eyes. But it's really fun. And I've missed that part. I have to say, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm in London now in pre-production. And this is one of my favorite parts of the job, which truly is just about being hands-on and making what is just words on a page come to life.
0: You mentioned the directors. Tell us about this show's directors. For those who don't know, how do TV directors differ from film directors? And then, what's your relationship with the director as being a showrunner?
1: So it's really interesting. I've never worked in features, so I don't have that experience to compare it to. But in my understanding on features, the director is the final say on everything. And in television, it's much more collaborative because I'm there. You know, directors come and go in television. Obviously, we're shooting eight episodes we do something called block shooting, which is we shoot two episodes at a time. So we have four directors. The directors come in, they come out, they come in and we basically do boot camp, Witcher bootcamp, which is let's catch you up on everything you need to know about the lore and the stories we've been telling and what a Witcher is and what these monsters are. We pour information on them. And I work very closely with them in tone meetings and in production meetings to make sure that they understand the scripts. They understand our intents and purposes and everything we're trying to do. And then I back off and let them do their job. I'm there every day, mostly as a resource, but then I let their creative vision take over. And we can just continue bouncing back and forth. And then that director leaves and we do it all over again with a new director. So what I love in television and about the opportunity of working with directors is there's always a new energy coming in. I'm the constant on the show, but the directors will come in and bring their own style of shooting or their own energy, or, you know, we have directors who constantly play music on set. Uh, We have directors Uh, that are quiet and, you know, I just love that the energy is shifting and it keeps everyone on their toes and keeps them really excited.
0: On different shows, directors have different instructions as to how to be creative and think outside of the box and how stylistically they can really be. Some shows prefer a more straightforward approach and others encourage their directors to be more experimental, using long takes as an example. So what were your stylistic instructions for the directors on this? And how did you maintain an aesthetic consistency since there are different directors with different styles across different episodes?
1: So it's a great question because it's something actually that really sort of grew as the process grew. And this is what doing a season one of television is like, right? Which is you learn quickly what works and what doesn't work. I, from the beginning thought, okay, here's the style of the show. Here's what I want the show to look like. Here's what I expect it to look like. Yes, The Witcher is a bit funny, but it's going to look like a serious you know, fantasy show. And then very quickly, on our feet, we realized that wasn't working. It wasn't a show that lent to super long takes or super dramatic takes. It needed a pace in it that really, and again, this was really informed by the humor that started coming out when we were shooting and the chemistry between characters so much more rose to the surface. And the shooting style had to evolve with the show. And so the later directors that came on benefited from that experience because we could very much say, you know, we prefer in the editing room, what we're seeing is that shorter takes are working better. We are using a more frenetic cutting style or, you know, we're using wide shots to establish, but really we want to be closer to the characters for most of this. And that's just something that. We learned from experience. So it's fun to be starting in season two and to have all that knowledge of what actually worked and what didn't work so well. You know, The Witcher is obviously shot in all these beautiful places. So we want to make sure that we show off the world and we show off our sets and, you know, they're gorgeous. But we also have to make sure it's so character based that we're also inside with the characters and feeling them enough too. It's a real balance.
0: And when you're on set, How do the scripts evolve during production? I know that sometimes in the moment, things change based on, you know, the limitations of the set, and then maybe sometimes actors like to improvise. Did uh, Henry ever get to uh, improvise at all?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't know that it's so much improvise as we would discuss something on the day. And, you know, the last thing that we can do as writers is be precious about our words. Because sometimes things work on the page and they don't work at all when you get them on their feet or how you imagine things, you're suddenly watching and going, well, that just, that just looks silly or that's, you know, it just isn't going to work. So what I love about the collaboration with Henry and, and all the other actors and, and the director as well is by having me there and by getting something on its feet and me saying, I'm the first one to say like, oh, no, that doesn't look at all like what I expected. So then we get our brains together and we talk about what was the purpose of the scene? what was I trying to get out in the scene? What do I really care about? And then we collaborate and we make it come to life. It's one of my favorite things about working in television is being among such smart people and, and people who are so good at their jobs and care about the show just as much as I do. And every once in a while you film something and you know, I'll say, no, 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 this is really how I wanted it. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, sometimes I'll watch things in putts and realize, oh, I should have bent more on that. Or sometimes I'll watch something and say, oh, I bent too much. I wish I had stuck to my gut. It's As I said, everything about The Witcher has been a real learning process for me. And it's the beauty of being able to do this for the first time and then get to come back and do it again.
0: You mentioned that the writer's room is 20 weeks. How long does production last?
1: You know, we are shooting, I don't know how many weeks. We're shooting for uh, about 125 days, however that breaks down. So, you know, we go for, I think it's about five and a half months depending, give or take. Season one was much longer. Season one just took longer for us to do. But we feel for season two that we've got, we've got a little more under control now.
0: Is there one day on the set of The Witcher season one that stands out to you?
1: Oh, so many. You know, I would say my favorite day. We were in the Canary Islands in Spain, and we were shooting at a place called Rocky Nublo. And it was about an hour drive from the village that we were staying in. To the base of Rocky Nublo. And then we had to hike to the top and it's the only way up. And basically we had the entire crew and actors hiking to the very top. We were all carrying equipment. There wasn't a sense of like, no, you don't do that. Or I don't do this. Like everyone was carrying something. Then we get up there and it's, it's a point on the island from which you can see everything. And we were shooting this incredible fight with Anya Shalatra who plays Yennefer. And it's just stunning. I look at that scene. And I think about, you know, all of us, the director, me, everyone carrying stuff on their shoulders and climbing up and thinking, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And then I watch that scene and it's, it's all worth it. Making television is really hard work. That's something that no one tells you. It's really cold. We work a lot of nights throughout the year and it's dark and you're in the mud, you're outside, you're in the rain. It's not glamorous. It's really hard work, but that's part of what makes it so fun because you don't want to you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't want to be there. And I feel like that about the whole you know, crew is that everyone is pouring everything into it because if you're there at four in the morning and it's pouring down rain, you might as well be, um, you're there. So no, it's, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of great days, but that's, that's the one that sticks out in my brain.
0: So filming wraps and it becomes the editing process. What's the role of a showrunner during that phase? And how did editing The Witcher differ than say editing other shows? I imagine obviously those timelines might've made it challenging.
1: Timelines did make it challenging. (laughs) So, you know, the position of a showrunner in post is exactly what it is on set, which is I'm there working alongside the directors, working alongside the editors, and then working alongside the composers and the sound mixers, all of the different people who are bringing the final picture together, the colorist. I'm constantly offering notes. I get most involved probably with the editors because that's the final step of storytelling. You can have something that works, again, really well on paper, and then you have it strung together as an episode. And you think, well, that story is not paced at all now. Or that thing that I thought I really needed now just sticks out like a sore thumb. So we work together to make sure that the episode is telling the story that I want to tell. And then the editors work their incredible magic. It's watching an editor do their job and sort of the visual storytelling is is one of my favorite parts of the process because it's not something I feel like I can do. And then it really boils down to the minutia. This is what I love about I've said I've loved like a hundred things about television, haven't <laughs> I? I really do like my job. It is watching all of these brilliant people do their like final thing. I'd never seen a colorist work before. I had never seen someone go through an episode and say that blood is not quite red enough, or that sky is not quite gray enough, or this whole scene needs lifted, or I'm seeing way too much. Let's so darken it, but just in that one place. It's amazing when you watch a show that's not well colored. You're like, oh, now I understand. But I never knew that that part of the process even happened. Same with sort of our sound designers and sound mixers. I basically just sit there and make sure that, again, I'm hearing the dialogue the way I expected to hear the dialogue. That the mood is set with, you know, bugs chirping in the background or or nothing, dead silence. It really is all of these people coming in and sort of practicing their fine art. And it's those steps that I really think take the show into what it is. Because I know, you know, I've watched a final cut of a show, a final picture cut of the show. And then you watch it with the music and the sound and the color and everything. It's it's incredible. It's a totally different experience.
0: Is there one scene that is your favorite or that you maybe you didn't expect would come out a certain way, but you're particularly proud of?
1: Yes. You know, there is a scene in episode seven and it takes place between Jennifer and Istrid. And it's it's a lovely scene. It was written by a writer named Mike Ostrowski and it was a really beautiful scene on the page. It was a very tough day. We were shooting in this abandoned sort of quarry. And it was hot. And we had a lot to get done that day. And I know both the actors, Royce Pearson and and Ishladra, both felt like they hadn't gotten it. They felt like they'd been rushed and it it just wasn't going to work. And the scene was edited together so beautifully. That was, I think, Liana DiGucci who edited that. And it is an epic love scene. And then the music that our composers put in there, is so sparse and it just lets the words hang there on their own. And there's a great point with the with the sound design of that scene where there's there's workers milling about outside, yelling back and forth, and you're hearing, you know, picks go into rock and very loud. And then it all starts to drift away. So that you're just with these two characters and you're in their brain as they're or in your in their heads as they're kind of the chemistry between them is growing and they're getting closer and closer. And then that bubble pops. Basically, and all the sound comes whooshing back in. And it is it's a scene that was, as I said, incredibly well written. But what we have on the screen, I think, is is kind of perfect. And it's all because of the sound and the music and the color.
0: Before we move into some bonus questions, my last question is what's next for you? I've heard that there will be a Witcher season two and you mentioned that earlier as well. How are you preparing for that? And also just in general, being a showrunner for again, I'll say it one more time, the number one show in the world. <laughs> Where do you go from there?
1: (laughs) You know, where do I go from here? I keep going with The Witcher. I'm serious. I mean, I have said, I've been interviewed before and said, I'll write it for seven years. I'll write it for 20 years. I'll write it for as long as people show up. I'm really in love with this project. I'm in love with the team that came together to make it happen. I really love working for Netflix. They're such great creative partners. And I really just want to focus on where I'm at right now. Also, and perhaps this is because I'm new to this job. I want to stay and get better at it. I want to continue learning and evolving and making sure that, that I'm giving my very best to this show. And I think the worst thing that I can do is start thinking about too many other things right now. I just want to focus and be good at this. Season two is exciting though, because this is going to sound repetitive, but it's, it's a chance to look at the mistakes we made in season one and do it better. Tell stories better. Improve some things. Look at what didn't work and get rid of it and start over. The Guard armor will be totally different. It's you have that opportunity to go back and and course correct if you want to. And so that's fun, too. It's, you know, I sound like such a geeky kid when I start talking about this show, but it really is uh, it really is kind of a dream
0: job. Lauren, are you ready for what we call a series of seemingly random questions?
1: Uh, I will. I will do my best. Cannot wait.
0: The first one is in your Twitter bio, you use hashtag cookie dough. Tell us what's that all about. We've heard that (laughs) snacks play an important part in the writer's room.
1: Snacks do play an important part. You know, the, the cookie dough thing is something that evolved on Twitter. I wanted to get engaged with fans from the very beginning. I announced, you know, as soon as Netflix announced me as the showrunner of the show, I got on Twitter and introduced myself. And funny enough, when you're working with sort of a, a huge fandom, not everyone is excited in the way that I'm excited. It was like, well, she's not who we imagined. And so I learned very quickly that, that there are some people that are going to like me and some people that are going to hate me. And my job is just to stay there and show how much I love this show. So I am really engaged with fans. I'm really engaged in social media. What this means sometimes, though, is that I perhaps over engage with people who really don't want to be nice to me. And at some point, I mean, this was like two years ago, at some point, I was going back and forth with someone who disagreed with something I had done. I don't even remember what. And I got so mad. And I said, I'm just going to go bury myself in cookie dough. And There were a lot of people who had been following me for a long time then and sort of took that up as this mantra of cookie dough could make me happier, that cookie dough could be the thing that I turn to (laughs) when things are a little rough. And it became such this sort of like joke. If I was having a bad day, someone on Twitter would say like, I'm just sending you, I'm sending you thoughts of cookie dough. And it became so funny. And to me, it's the best side of having such a huge fandom is now that I've engaged and participated, I, I know these people. They feel like they know me and that they understand me. And it now is this curious, fun friendship where I'm learning from them what they liked and didn't like in the show. They learn from me why I'm doing certain things. It honestly has been one of the most positive parts of the experience, despite what I initially thought.
0: <laughs> How much cookie dough would you say you've had total?
1: Um, So much cookie <laughs> dough. Someone actually introduced me to edible cookie dough recently that doesn't have raw eggs in it. It's uh, not healthier i was going to say healthier it's not healthy but it's uh, you know less chance of killing you so that's actually what i've moved to and i eat tons of it
0: next question was slid to me on a note card by our producer harry so you've worked on the west wing could president bartlett have brought peace to the world of the witcher and the second part is could he have been a good parental figure for yennefer
1: oh my god that's amazing i mean yes he could absolutely be a good parental figure he raised three girls he knows everything about teenagers or Knows when to just back off and say, No, you know, you handle it, Abby. So, yes, he would be a great father figure. You know, God, could he bring peace to the world of the Witcher? No, I think that's an impossible task. Wow. I don't think peace is actually possible in the world of the Witcher because there's so many different kingdoms, there's so many different priorities, there's monsters, there's creatures, there's cursed people, there's witchers and sorcerers. Not all those people are going to live happily ever after. So, I just don't even think he'd try.
0: The next question. Some people are saying The Witcher is the next Game of Thrones. I'm sure you get this question a lot. How do you feel about that comparison?
1: Um, I've heard that comparison once or twice. When people started saying it to me very early on in the process, I think what it meant is, hey, you're writing a big fantasy show. And do you think it's going to be as successful as Game of Thrones? Do you think it's going to be as popular as Game of Thrones? To which I would always say, like, God, I hope so. That's the dream, right? Is to have a show that resonates with that many people across the world and... Knock on the wood in front of me. I think we're actually there. Is "The Witcher the Next Game of Thrones?" No, absolutely not. One, no one's looking to replace Game of Thrones." I was a huge fan of the show. I don't think anyone wants to do that all over again. Like that show existed and was fantastic and should live on in Canon it has a fantastic show. Nothing should be looking to replace it. Also, "The Witcher is super different. It is a fantasy show, and there are sword battles. That's kind of where the comparisons end, though. It's a really funny show. It doesn't take itself seriously at all. It's not overly earnest. It has, we really lean into the monsters and the magic and the the lightness that that brings to the world. And there's a tongue-in-cheek thing in this about what we do that I think just separates it immediately when you start watching it.
0: Next question, how influenced were the shows by the video games? Obviously, we talked a lot about the short stories, but are there any particular pieces that came from the video games?
1: You know, when I first, um, I'm not a gamer myself, but when I first took on the project, I found a friend of mine, Matt Owens, who was a huge gamer, and I basically insisted that he let me play. And then very quickly, I realized I sucked. So I watched <laughs> him play and, and drank some beers and uh, took in the visuals of the world. And what I will say is that that's probably the biggest thing I took from the games, is that oftentimes people think of fantasy as really dirty and gritty and horrible and everything's dark. And the truth is, The Witcher actually has a lot of color, has a lot of life, has a lot of everything to it. So that's something I saw in the game. I saw just how beautiful the world could be. And to me, what a great balance for fantasy, because this is, this is real life, right? Even in tragedy in real life, the sun still rises and it sets. And like, that can still be beautiful, even if there's a war going on next door. So that's something that we took. And also, I think there's a lot of sort of, um, there's a lot of little Easter eggs in the show. That are basically just there to say, like, video gamers, we see you. Like, we know you're here, too. And we know that you love The Witcher and, you know, and not just because of the books. So we just want to throw out little things to you as well.
0: If you could be any one of the characters in the show, or maybe even any of the books or the video games, which character would you choose?
1: Yennefer, hands down. She is sort of the light of my life. (laughs)
0: Love it. Next question. If you could take any writer or showrunner to any fast food restaurant, which writer slash showrunner would you choose in which restaurant and why?
1: Oh, my God. Um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, for sure. I, I mean, I, I just want to be friends with her or just sit and pepper her with questions constantly. You know, I would just want to go for like a burger and fries. Take me to In and Out at any point. By the way, I have no idea. Maybe Phoebe Waller-Bridge doesn't eat meat. Who knows? <laughs> um, but I like to keep it simple. <laughs>
0: The second to last question, what is one piece of advice or learning from your career that you'd like to pass along to the writers who are listening to this show who maybe aspire to be a showrunner or a writer for a TV show?
1: Oh, man. I mean, the biggest piece of advice, and this is the thing that I always tell other writers that I meet with, people who haven't quite broken through yet, make sure that everyone knows what you want to do. I think this is especially true for women who are sort of generationally told to to be seen and not heard. We get embarrassed about saying, hey, I have this big dream. I want to do this huge thing. And I know there's a really small chance that I'll make it. But like, that's what I want to do. And I tell all writers, men and women, like, make sure people know. Because if I know you want to be a writer, then I can look out for you. I can help support you. I can give you opportunities. I can give you advice. I could mentor you. I could offer to read your script or, you know, pass you along to a friend who is looking for an assistant who might, you know, that might be your way in the door. I think it's really about vocalization of dreams and not being scared to say what you want to do.
0: The last question is the most important question. Drum roll, please. That's a real drum roll. That's a real drum. Just a little low. (laughs) Um, Please hand me the envelope and the envelope has been handed to me. It's not a real one. I just say that it is because it's a podcast and you can't see it. I'm opening it now. And the last question is, did you have fun today with us?
1: I had so much fun. You can tell my answers are like four or five minutes long. Good luck editing this. I love talking about writing. It is one of my favorite things to talk about. And obviously, I could talk for hours. This was a blast.
0: Well, we had a lot of fun too. And it's super apparent that you really love your job. The Witcher Season 1 is on Netflix now. If you're listening and you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Please check it out. Lauren, before you go, did you want to plug anything else or shout out your Twitter or your social media handles?
1: Honestly, I just want people to keep watching the show and keep falling in love with it. We have a lot more stuff to come in the coming years. And so, you know, I just want people to watch and enjoy.
0: Thank you, Lauren, so much. We appreciate your insights, your time. And maybe we'll have you back on after season two.
1: That sounds perfect. I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer exp. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McCleod.